This episode is supported by Vegamore. I'm a month and a half into my Vegamore journey. I don't know if you've ever had a garden and planted seeds, but when that first little growth breaks ground, it's exciting. And on my very head, I can see some new growth in the areas that I've noticed hair thinning before. And it's exciting to see those little babies coming in. I use the shampoo, conditioner, and the grow serum, which have a lovely, mellow, warm citrus smell. I've been consistently using this and it makes my hair feel soft and full. And it's really important to me that I use safe and conscious products whenever I can. And Vegamore is 100% cruelty-free and are never formulated with potentially harmful chemicals like parabens or hormones. Elevate your hair wellness routine this year with Vegamore. For a limited time, get 20% off your first subscription order by going to vegamore.com slash mind and use code mind at checkout. That's V-E-G-A-M-O-U-R.com slash mind, code mind to save 20% on your first order. V-E-G-A-M-O-U-R.com slash mind, code mind. Welcome to Mom in Mind. I'm perinatal psychologist and host, Dr. Kat. There is more to the story than just postpartum depression, and this podcast aims to share it all. From personal stories and lived experience to experts who break down the ups and downs of life from getting pregnant, pregnancy, perinatal loss, and postpartum adjustment to parenthood. While this is not psychotherapy or medical advice, it is all of the stuff you ever wanted to know about mental health and new parenthood. Welcome back to Mom and Mind. I am your host, Dr. Kat. On this episode, we are discussing some of the impacts of sexual abuse on pregnant, birthing, and postpartum folks. This might be a difficult discussion for some people to listen to. Given that, we are not discussing specific details of traumatic events. Our discussion is specific, but also vague, so we are not going into any details of things that have happened to individuals as we know that these types of topics and anything related to trauma, but specific sexual trauma can bring up a lot of feelings. And so for that reason, please gauge for yourself if you are up for listening. And if not, know that this episode is here for whenever you'd like to return. My guest today, Deborah Flam, is a reproductive therapist in New Jersey. In addition, she's a volunteer support group facilitator and a New Jersey support coordinator for Postpartum Support International. Deborah is on the board of PSI New Jersey as the Community Outreach and Engagement Board member. She has training in perinatal mental health, infertility, birth trauma, perinatal and infant loss, and compassionate bereavement care. Deborah also has specialized training on the impact of sexual abuse on childbearing individuals. She has volunteered for the Ocean County Sexual Assault Response Team as a confidential sexual assault advocate. She has provided training to nursing and social work students on issues related to sexual abuse. And she's going to be touching on a little bit of her personal story and how her trauma history impacted her pregnancy and postpartum experience, as well as sharing with us some of the ways in which clinicians can help prepare sexual abuse survivors for their birth. We are also going to touch on the ever-important discussion of some of the ways in which medical professionals can provide trauma-informed care. Let's meet Deborah. Welcome, Deborah. Thank you so much for being with us. 
Hi, thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm especially grateful that you're coming on to share both your experience and some of the, the clinical side of this because I'm sure it's not talked about enough. And you coming on to share your experience and give tips and pointers or perspective to care providers is incredibly important. But also, you know all this already, but I'm just going to overstate it for folks who are listening. And unless you hear this from somebody else, unless you hear somebody's story, it's really hard to figure out that you can advocate for yourself or share your own story. So this is, is really, really important. So thank you for, for coming on. Yeah, absolutely. So I will just let you start wherever you feel comfortable with your own story and yeah, how, how your trauma impacted your experience. Yeah. So I like to say my story began from the moment I saw the positive pregnancy test. But certainly prior to that, I always knew I was a survivor. And the moment I saw that positive pregnancy test, I remember feeling this really intense feeling of anxiety to the extent that I had to lay on my stomach just to help tolerate some of that. So I remember feeling this really deep sinking feeling and this was very much a wanted pregnancy, so the whole sensation was very bizarre to me. Physically speaking, my pregnancy was quite easy. I think some, some pregnant folks may hate me for this, but I didn't experience any morning sickness. Like, I was feeling physically great. Mm -hmm. Emotionally speaking, though, I, I was really a hot mess. I remember just experiencing severe depression and anxiety. And throughout this whole time, I had seen a therapist, I was seeing a therapist, and she never once mentioned to me like, hey, this could be perinatal anxiety and depression, certainly mm. being exacerbated as a result of your trauma. This is sorry, this is somebody who knew your history already or who you began seeing during pregnancy. No, this is somebody who knew my history already. Got it, got it. Yeah, yeah. And I recall feeling like there was a parasite inside my body. Mm. So almost like this idea, like, just get it out of me. Like, I was yeah. just so eager to get this child out of me. Yeah. And as I reflect back, I, I look at my pictures during that time period, and I actually don't have even one picture of me being pregnant. Mm. I was, yeah, I, I was in complete denial. I remember saying to my husband, I don't look pregnant, right? Like I kept saying that to him and I wore like extra large clothes just to hide the pregnancy and just to look like I was fat versus pregnant. I remember being just in complete and total denial. Mm -hmm. The scariest thing happened to me when I was 35 weeks pregnant, I went in for a regular routine checkup with my OB and she had taken me into the room and said to me, honey, you're five centimeters dilated and your contractions are three to five minutes apart. You're in active labor. Sorry, how, how far along were you again? 35 weeks. Oh, okay. Oh. So I was five centimeters dilated and my contractions were three to five minutes apart. Mm. And my husband, again, this was a, a 35 week visit. So he didn't come with me to that appointment. And this was prior to COVID. Right. I remember calling him at work and saying, they say I'm in active labor. And the doctor said to me, she said, you're not feeling anything. And I said, no, I'm not feeling anything. Mm. She said, huh, I, I think you're magical. Like what's wrong with you that you're not <laughs> feeling anything? And I was like, I don't know. So 
we packed our bags and we went to the hospital and the hospital was about an hour drive from my house at the time. And I remember just being terrified that there was going to be a baby in this car Mm -hmm. because again, I wasn't feeling anything. So I had no way to gauge myself of like Mm -hmm. what was happening. Mm -hmm. So I got to the hospital and I was there for a little bit being monitored. And at the end of the day, so then what happened was that my contraction stopped, Mm -hmm. but I was still dilated. So they sent me home and I, again, for the next couple of days, I was just not sleeping. I wasn't eating. I was terrified. It was so scary to me that I wasn't feeling anything. And like, how would I know from having this baby? Right. Exactly. Yeah. And I I went in again for a couple other visits and they gave me a stare. I I believe it was a steroid vaccine to, Mm -hmm. to help to, to, to really ensure that the baby would be healthy. Should should he come early? And then at 37 weeks, I went back into the doctor's office. And sure enough, I was in active labor again. Mm. And five hours later, I delivered my son. Mm. And wow. this is also totally unexpected. You're going in for not well, not unexpected, given what you were going through. But it, there was for you and still not feeling or a sense of that what was going on. No sensation. It mm-hmm. was absolutely terrifying. Mm-hmm. And throughout the entire labor, like I didn't feel any pain. Now, granted, I did, I did take an epidural in fear of feeling pain. Mm-hmm. So at that point, I didn't feel anything. But prior to that, I, I really did not feel any sort of sensation. And I remember at, like the minute after the second after I gave birth, I, I burst out crying. Mm-hmm. There was this sudden sense of like an overwhelming amount of responsibility. Mm-hmm. And I remember the nurse turned to me and she said to me, are you okay? And I was like, yeah, of course. And of course I wasn't okay. And that entire experience was so frightening. And I I truly believe that I was completely disassociated Mm. from that, which is really why I didn't feel any pain. Mm -hmm. Postpartum for me was incredibly challenging. I, all of my symptoms of fetal anxiety, depression, exacerbated. And on top of that, I developed significant OCD, Mm. especially intrusive and and really, really frightening thoughts. I engaged in a lot of avoidance and just really, really terrified and scared. And and that pretty much sums up my story in in a very, very brief journey. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, in in a really brief nutshell. Mm -hmm. And so much of what I'll be talking about in, in terms of survivors and their experiences Mm-hmm. all relates to my story. And it really wasn't until I had gone for my training from the authors of When Survivors Give Birth mm-hmm. that I suddenly realized like, wait a minute, they're telling my story. Mm. And at that time, like I said, I was seeing a therapist and I said to my therapist at the time, I said, I, I just want to hand you all these resources mm. because I, I am so upset that I was never told that like, this is, this is expected this is postpartum and perinatal anxiety and depression. Like mm-hmm, this is, mm-hmm. you don't have to feel this way. Right. And I provided her like with a whole lot of resources about PSI, about birth trauma, about mm-hmm. all, all the really important things that I would hope that all survivors and all birthing people will have, would have access to. Right. Right. Yeah, it is. It is. It sounds like almost all parts of your journey were new and surprising in in some way like how how do you not feel 
this and maybe during pregnancy too what what is that feeling about about feeling like there's a parasite and just needing to get this baby out because all of the the sort of like quote-unquote fairy tale storybooks say that of course you're supposed to love all of this pregnancy through birth and postpartum and whatnot so was this also the the first time you were kind of learning that it could feel terrible oh yeah yeah, mm-hmm. this was my first pregnancy. It absolutely, absolutely. Mm-hmm. That is a whole lot. So it's important to recognize that the World Health Organization states that about one in three women will experience physical and or sexual violence in their lifetime, right? Mm-hmm. So, so those numbers are really high. And it's important to recognize the impact that happens to them during the reproductive years. Mm-hmm. So certainly when we talk about pregnancy, many survivors are going to feel a lot of shame Mm. related to their body, Mm -hmm. specifically about their their bellies growing, their breasts growing. They feel a lot of disgust and shame. So sexual Mm -hmm. shame and disgust Mm -hmm. oftentimes coexist. Mm -hmm. They're oftentimes going to have a lot of fear around having any sort of pelvic or vaginal exam. They will oftentimes be fearful of seeing the baby inside their body. Of, like of, via ultra, ultrasound type any, or any kind of imaging. Yes, ultrasounds, mm-hmm. exactly, yes. Many of them are, are terrified and are completely out of touch with their body, right? Mm-hmm. Kind of similarly to like what I was. Mm-hmm. And they may, they may view themselves as defective and very sensitive to touch and whether that be sexual touch or physical touch, mm-hmm. they, they may be very codependent on any sort of medical staff or their partners. They may have a really, really difficult time trusting their providers mm-hmm. and, and they may prefer one gender over the other. Right. So sometimes I'll hear people say, oh, this client is just so complicated, right? Like they're just being so, like they're such a difficult patient. Mm -hmm. And really they're not trying to be difficult. They're just trying to get their needs met. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Can you, if I can go back for just a second, can, can you say a little bit more about that? Like the codependent, codependency, I guess on the on the partner provider, like what would that look like? Okay, so they may be very dependent rather mm. on the caregiver and the medical staff. So very mm. dependent in terms mm-hmm. of like not wanting them to leave the room, very oh, much right. like wanting them to be with them the entire time, not wanting to be left alone. Yeah, they, yeah. they may be asking a whole lot of questions, mm-hmm. very, very fragile, very concerned and very scared, very frightened. Yeah. I imagine, you know, what you were describing, that kind of feeling dependent on, on maybe a partner or some part of the medical staff, and then also at the same time, not knowing who to trust, how conflictual that can feel and overwhelming that can feel, that to to need both, to to like need, need the support, but also not know who you can trust. Yes, yes, absolutely. Really difficult. Okay, yeah, thank you for thank you for going into that. Yeah. Support for today's episode comes from OneSkin, and for a limited time my listeners get an exclusive 15% off OneSkin products using the code MIND when you check out at oneskin.co. Well, I've kept up my mini resolution of taking better care of my skin after consistently using OneSkin for several weeks and all is going well. I can't see what's going on at a cellular level, but I can tell you that my skin feels soft and healthy. 
But they did do some cool research that looked at before and after exposure of the OS1 peptide to skin cells. And the one skin scientist found that the peptide reverses skin's biological age. And you can even see that study by Zonari A. et al. in the NPJ Aging Journal. OneSkin is the world's first skin longevity company. By focusing on the cellular aspects of aging, OneSkin keeps your skin looking and acting younger for longer. Get started today with 15% off using code MIND at oneskin.co. That's 15% off oneskin.co with code MIND. After you purchase, they'll ask where you heard about them. Please support our show and tell them we sent you. New year, healthier skin. That's one skin. This episode is supported by Ritual. I am by nature and nurture a bit skeptical. I have to see for myself if something works or if it's helpful before I just believe it whole cloth. And I'm open to trying things out to see for myself. And that includes finding strategies for my wellness. I have historically low vitamin D, so it's important for me to take Ritual's Essential 18 because it has D3 in it, and their clinically backed Essential for Women 18 Plus Multivitamin has several other high-quality, traceable key ingredients in clean, bioavailable forms. What I love and have always loved about Ritual is that it's a female-founded company, and it's a B Corp, which means they're holding themselves accountable And not just long-term, but also to the health of people and our planet. No more shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash momandmind. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash momandmind for 25% off. The other thing that can oftentimes be very concerning, and and this is really a whole other separate issue, is the gender of the fetus or the baby. Mm -hmm. For example, if if the perpetrator was male, the idea of having a penis inside of them Mm -hmm. is absolutely terrifying. Mm -hmm. And, And again, just a whole lot of fears around the birth and and the entire labor process and and being restricted to a bed, Mm -hmm. all of that brings up so many concerns. Yeah, Um, absolutely. Yeah. And being undressed during labor, right? Being on display. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So thinking about too, oftentimes in in different hospitals, they will have like residents. And if it's a teaching hospital, they'll have students want to come in. And that can be so, so frightening and concerning. Right. So like feeling already super vulnerable and then not knowing who's going to be in the room or uh, yeah. If somebody you don't know or somebody who's not part of your care team is coming into the room, how much more vulnerable they might be feeling. Yeah. But yeah, for sure. For sure. The other thing too, and I think this is like an interesting point that we don't always recognize is the bodily secretions can be very triggering for them. Mm-hmm. So things like seeing blood, amniotic fluid, mm-hmm. and many of them are, are hyper concerned about actually pooping during labor. Mm-hmm. I'll never forget where a survivor told me that after she gave birth, the first question she asked the doctor isn't, is my baby okay? It was that I poop. Right. Mm-hmm. A lot of fear around shame about, about pooping in labor. Mm-hmm. Right. So I, I, I guess I'm hearing then too that the, the, the deepest sort of most intense feelings are shame, yeah. shame and or embarrassment, vulnerability, just, I mean, that juxtaposition of, of 
feeling those feelings and then being super vulnerable at the same time, like labor and having all these people in the room is a lot to manage yes. emotionally. Yes. And not only shame, but also like feelings of out of control, right? Like mm-hmm. I don't have autonomy mm-hmm. and I'm just completely out of control. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. The other thing too is certain body positions that oftentimes medical staff, whether it be doulas or physicians, will ask them to kind of go into certain positions, whether that be putting their their legs up, their feet up on the stirrups or going on all fours to help with some of the pain can also be very, very triggering. Absolutely. Holding the baby can also be very terrifying to them. The hospital environment. So if somebody had to have any sort of forensic exam, post-assault, post-abuse, that can, that, so now being in a hospital, right, even if it's to have a baby versus the forensic exam can be very triggering. So the smells, what they're seeing, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, what they're hearing, Mm -hmm. all of that. So, right, all like this, all sensory stuff is really heightened. You were saying about touch before, like maybe even during pregnancy and anytime, touch and smells and sounds and, and all of that stuff could just be like on volume 20. Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Very Mm -hmm. hyper, like hyper aware. Absolutely. Right. Which in and of itself is really a lot. Like if you're, if you're on alert, sort of like looking around and feeling around for what's, what's safe or what's even happening, like not, not even if it's safe or not, but what actually is happening. Like, why is this nurse giving me this thing? That's, that's incredibly overwhelming. Just to manage that, let alone all the other layers that you're describing. Yeah, absolutely. And the other part of that too is that there's really a power differential there mm-hmm. where if you're the survivor is oftentimes not as knowledgeable as the as the medical staff. So they're right. talking and, and they're they're doing all these things, they're able to walk around freely versus the survivor is, is, is in bed, right? Mm-hmm. They're, they're, they're the recipient of all those different interventions. So that too is something to, to be mindful of. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I know you're going to talk a little bit more in a moment about how, how providers can be aware of this, but I know you're, gonna, you're going to talk about what providers can do um, and in hearing all of the things that you're describing that somebody can feel who, who has gone through the experience and who's going into pregnancy or birth and postpartum, it, it sounds like it could be feel really hard to empowered in, in these dynamics if you're feeling that vulnerable. Yeah. So any, anyways, I, I know you're going to give kind of some, some perspective on what providers can do and, and maybe also on what survivors can do, but it's just striking in a way of, of how many different things could be happening in, in somebody's experience. I'm not saying that all of it is happening all at the same time, but there's just so many layers here. Yes, there really is. And I mm-hmm. think that's not, that's, that's really what's not being recognized by the outside world. How Got many it. layers and uh-huh. how, how triggering it really can be. And the other thing too, to be thinking about is like any medical instruments that are going to be used, right? Mm-hmm. So things like forceps or a vacuum, mm-hmm. giving the patient stitches, a patient who, who has an episiotomy, right? Like all of these things can be so 
so activating for the survivor. The, the, the sensations during labor, not just the physical sensations, but also hearing themselves yelling and mm. pushing and mm-hmm. screaming, all of mm-hmm. that too can be so triggering for them. Right. Well, I, I wonder too, because you, you were saying before in like your own personal experience, there was like a dissociation or disconnection mm-hmm. from, from what was going on. And there's, there's a lot of reasons that people do dissociate mostly coping and, and protection, but this, when you were just describing that, that feeling of, of overwhelm and having so many things going on, it made me think that the providers in the room might not be aware that all of that's going on. Like somebody could be having a really internal experience and be like seemingly like quote unquote handling it fine, but maybe they're actually just trying to get through mm-hmm. and being very quiet. Yeah. So, right providers might not even notice or know that somebody's going through something if they're having to be quiet in order to cope. Yeah. And that's something that I'll oftentimes educate nurses on or things like that. I'll talk to them about the passive patient, right? Mm-hmm, the patient mm-hmm. that's like the perfect, the really good patient oh, yeah, because yeah. They're, they're just kind of complying and listening. It's really because they're, they feel defeated mm. and, and more importantly, shut down. And, mm-hmm. unable to, and unable to use their voice. Right. So yeah, that's a really important. And I'll, I'll talk about this a little bit more in a bit, but thinking too about breast or chest feeding and how activating that can be mm-hmm. and things around changing the infant's pamper, right? Looking at the genitalia, feeling the genitalia when, when they have to change a pamper or bathe them, being left alone with the baby. Mm-hmm. And certainly sexual intrusive thoughts can, can very oftentimes occur. Right. And the other thing too, to be thinking about is a recent very large study confirmed that one in 12 survivors meet the diagnostic criteria. So I'm sorry, one in 12 pregnant survivors meet the diagnostic criteria for PTSD. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And a study from 2021 confirmed that women with sexual abuse history report more obstetrical complications, unplanned C-sections, and are two times more likely to hire premature infants than women with no sexual abuse history. Mm-hmm. And I think this very much relates to my story. Although in the end, I gave birth at 37 weeks, which is full term, I, I could have been dilated for, I don't even know how many weeks. It was only at oh, 35. Right. Did they actually see that for the first time? But mm-hmm. I, I truly believe that the reason why I went into preterm labor is because I was so anxious mm-hmm. as mm-hmm. a result of being a survivor. Um, mm-hmm. So certainly there's being very aware of that and thinking about how, how they best want to support clients and or patients in that time period. Right. This just is maybe providers, OBs, nurses, or whoever's in the, in the birthing room may or may not have had any of this training and most likely not had any training on how to recognize this or, or a couple of hours here or there, but it's with all that's going on in that, the the room birthing and, and whatnot, attending to mom, attending to the pregnant person or the baby. If that's, if this isn't something that is just that they've had some deep training on, it's might not be in their awareness, Yeah, which, which, yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's all, all of the stuff you're describing with all the potential complications or difficulties within pregnancy and birth it you had said before the patient or or client or whoever could the birthing person could seem like a difficult 
like you said, or they could be really passive and the perfect patient. And are there any other ways that people might be sort of showing up emotionally there other than the feeling like they need to be the perfect patient or being more vocal? I think the third option would probably be one person, a person rather, who is just completely like flat affect, completely shut out completely, right? So not uh-huh. being like necessarily the passive or the perfect patient, okay. but rather just completely disassociated and separated from the experience. Probably what I was, what, what I must have looked like as a patient in that room. Okay. Like not affected and, and like, not yeah. interacting or... Almost, I'll, I'll, I'll never forget, like, the first thing I said to my husband, so after I cried, I said to my husband, the first thing before I even saw my baby, right, like, or anything, I said to him, grab me, like, can, can you give me my phone? I just want to tell everybody, right? Like, it was almost uh-huh. bizarre to me how, like, oh, okay. that, right, right. that was my hyper focus. Like, I, again, I had no idea whether my baby was alive, technically, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm sure somebody would have told me. But I, I really was completely, like, that was not my focus. Like, I was mm-hmm. so disassociated that like, mm-hmm. just so detached from mm-hmm. from reality. And I think really, that is what we see as well, like a complete detachment from reality. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like you're, you're, I'm not saying you specifically, but like the person who's experiencing this is there, but they're not attending to details yes. of like what's happening in the room. Like that sounds like your experience was more like just like taking care of business. Yeah, business as usual. Okay. And- I will always tell my, I will always tell my support group members how one of the things I talk about in my support groups is career versus parenthood, like Mm -hmm. that huge shift in identity. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. I remember being in labor. Now, granted, I didn't feel anything, but I was in labor having a phone interview in the, and just Mm -hmm. that complete detachment Mm -hmm. of like, and why didn't anybody see that as bizarre, right? Like, why was nobody like, honey, what's wrong with you? What's happening? So I think that in and of itself was very, very frightening for me now to, to recognize like that wasn't okay. Mm. But it also makes me wonder sort of what you said earlier of like, how can providers have a better understanding of when you see a patient like that, how mm-hmm. to best intervene mm-hmm. and how to recognize the signs of like something, something's going on here, right? This person is clearly in a traumatic response. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. Oh gosh, there's just so many different ways that they could respond, that they meaning the providers could respond to that. Some of which I'm sure are supportive and some which are not. It's really difficult in big medical systems with huge teams of people to, to have everybody be on like on the same, on board, on the same wavelength, like noticing and recognizing and supporting somebody who's going through this. And, and I think I do hear that you're going to tell us there are ways that they can. So that's nice. Yeah. And I, I think that's, that's really where the, the focus is. Like, even if you have no knowledge or understanding of how to support survivors, mm-hmm. there's number one things that you shouldn't do, but then there are always things that you should be doing regardless yeah, of whether right. the person's a survivor. Yep. Right. And in, in the research that I read, and a lot of the research is very qualitative in nature and very mm-hmm. narrative, because mm-hmm. I think that's, mm-hmm. that's kind of the nature of, of, of this, yeah. which is, which is really impactful, even though there may only be like three or four participants, I think the stories speak to the community. And more often than not, in, in these survivors' stories, they're sharing about 
these are the things that were really harmful that my leaders did or mm-hmm. said, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And they're talking about ways in which they could have just showed up. And it's not anything right. like, oh my goodness, they had to come and do EMDR. You know, it mm-hmm. wasn't anything intense like that. It was, if only they would have asked me permission before they did this, mm-hmm. or if only they would have respected me and my privacy, all these different things that I'll get to in just a minute, ways in which they could show up to right. anybody, but even yeah, oh, yeah. survivor. Absolutely. Yeah. So shifting gears a little bit, I, I want to talk briefly about how therapists, and then I'll talk about how medical professionals can intervene. Yeah. And more importantly, therapists as I am a therapist. Right. And first and foremost is obviously the therapeutic alliance, right? The therapeutic mm-hmm. relationship. Mm-hmm. The therapist and the client are egalitarian, right? Like they're equals where this is a very, you know, there's no one inferior to the other, right? Yes. Ideally. Um, yes. Yes. So moving on from that, once, once there's trust, when there, once there's rapport, walking clients through a list of potential triggers is really important. So what I mean by that mm. is, first of all, having the client recognize when they feel activated in their bodies, right? So Bessel van der Kolk talks a lot about trauma in the body. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes he describes that survivors of abuse have absolutely no idea, you know, how to feel inside their bodies. Right. Right. And having, having clients come up with, with the adjectives or some words around how they know they're feeling calm. Right. So maybe starting first with physical things, like how do you know when you're hungry or how do you know when you're tired? And then moving into how do you notice when you're calm in your body? And then As you walk through the list of triggers, so if you're meeting somebody prior to conception, then walking through potential triggers that can come up in pregnancy, and then if you're meeting somebody in pregnancy, talking about a list of potential triggers that can happen in labor and delivery and then postpartum. And all of this can be can be accessed through Penny Simpkin and Phyllis Claus's book, When Survivors Give Birth. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're on my like wish list of people to interview. <laughs> they're, they're phenomenal human uh-huh. beings. Oh uh-huh. my goodness. And they, they, they really, really talk about this in, in great detail in their book and also in, in a lot of their articles. And having clients notice in their bodies, are you feeling activated or are you feeling cued when I say this? And having them identify what potentially is coming up for them and then coming up with possible solutions together, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? So it's not necessarily going to be about increasing distress tolerance. It may be about workarounds. Mm-hmm, so for mm-hmm. example, if a client says, I like that. yeah, yeah, right. So if a client says like, I'm, I'm terrified to change the baby's pamper, right? So rather than again, like I said, increasing distress tolerance or even doing some sort of like exposure on that, Rather, is there a partner? Again, this may be mm-hmm. just for the time being, but is there a partner that can change the pamper? Or can you right. wear gloves when changing mm-hmm. the pamper? Mm-hmm. Right? Like, can we come up with a solution yep. to help with that? What, what I specifically love, love about that is that you don't have to, like, treat the trauma or have the trauma be resolved in order to have an experience that feels less triggering or that yes. feels less overwhelming. Yes. Because, because I feel like, Well, I know for a lot of people who have survived any kind of abuse, but in particular sexual trauma, it can feel like immovable, like it, that it's, it's just can always feel like, how, how am I going to do these things without 
while still having that experience live within me the way it feels right now. And you're really making very clear that there, I love this like workaround idea. We don't, we don't have to go back in time right now to fix everything in order for you to have an experience that feels better for you. Yes, exactly. And I mm-hmm. think that's oftentimes the mistake that I'm cer- I was certainly guilty of prior to, to this knowledge where we don't have to try to fix everything mm-hmm. it, all at the same time. And I think oftentimes therapists can do that mm-hmm. with, with great intention. Sure. Yep. But that's not necessarily always the best option or, mm-hmm. or solution for, for their clients. Mm-hmm. And obviously teaching clients about their feelings and teaching them to help tolerate their feelings, that we're not trying to change the feelings, right? And I, again, I think that's something oftentimes we try to do is when clients will say like, I feel so guilty. I feel like I'm to blame. And mm-hmm. our, our initial response is you're not to blame. And, and rather just allowing them to feel that feeling and teaching them to, to allow it to move. Right. Mm-hmm. So I always talk about like, how can we support the movement of that feeling? We're not, not going to stay there forever. Right. Exactly. Um, or in this very moment, it's not going to stay there forever. Exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And the other thing too, and I, I think this, this word will, will speak so much to survivors is telling them that you believe them. Those mm-hmm. simple words of, I believe you. Mm-hmm. you know, I remember feeling crazy. And mm. I, I really do. I remember sharing these things with my therapist and she just kept putting it on anxiety. Like, oh, you're feeling anxious. Mm. And that didn't relate to me. It mm-hmm. wasn't just anxiety. It was something more. Yeah. And when my therapist currently, when I shared with her my experience and her response, and she just sat there silently and compassionately taking it all in, I remember saying to her at the end of my session of, thank you for believing me. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't that she said anything. It was the experience of, I'm not trying to change your narrative. I'm not trying to question your narrative. I believe what you're telling me. Right. So really letting survivors know that you believe them. Yeah. And as Megan Devine, who's a wonderful human being, says in her book, it's okay to not be okay. Mm -hmm. No, never tell clients, I can't imagine what that must have been like for you. Mm -hmm. Imagine it. That's how you (laughs) control true compassion. Mm-hmm. right? Imagine mm-hmm. it. So just some things to be thinking of and to be mindful of. We have a lot of great research around things like circle of security and trauma-based methods like somatic mm-hmm. experiencing, mm-hmm. EMDR, and things like that, which is, which is really wonderful. One of the things to recognize is I, I practice trauma-based yoga with, mm-hmm. I'm sorry, trauma-sensitive yoga with mm-hmm. a lot of my clients. And the reason why that is wonderful is because everything is via invitation only Mm -hmm. and recognizing with any sort of modality that you choose to use with your clients many of them don't didn't feel like they had any autonomy over their bodies during the abuse so recognizing and helping them well rather helping them understand that they they have the right to say i don't want to do this pose Mm. right like i invite you to do it but by all means, like you can take it or leave it. And that's with EMDR. That's with mm-hmm, somatic mm-hmm. experiencing. That's with really any sort of trauma-based method mm-hmm. where it's only via, in, via invitation. So thinking, thinking about that as well. Mm-hmm. And just to kind of really wrap up in terms of what therapists can do, helping them too with different guided meditations and visualizations. But again, 
Bringing them back to safety of the here and now, and I think this talks, this speaks to, to what you and I were talking about before, where you had asked about like disassociation or mm-hmm. when a client is completely detached from reality, mm-hmm. like having them come back into safety of the fact that they're, they're not there in the abuse, right? Like mm-hmm. they're safe, they're okay. Having them notice that they're breathing, that their heart is beating, yeah. really bringing them back to safety of the here and now. And then of course, finally creating a birth plan together. I consider it more of an emotional birth plan versus a physical birth plan, if you will. One that will include a trauma sensitive doula mm. and, and really helping them recognize like, what do you have control over versus what you don't, right? Because I think the reality is there are many parts of the birthing experience that somebody doesn't have control over, right? Right, so totally, right. Helping them recognize what they do and what they can do with it. And and like we talked about empowerment, having them recognize that they they can be their their own advocates, but if they feel like they don't they can't use their voice, then who can be their advocate? Uh, uh, yeah, advocate? for sure. That's so important. This episode is supported by Hungry Root. I am a creature of habit when it comes to food, like I buy the same stuff in the store and generally make the same stuff over and over. Not really that fun. So in order to shake things up, I use Hungry Root. I can pick a whole meal and they send me what I need to make it, but I will also just let them choose so I don't get into my rut. And it paid off. I got the chicken shawarma non-flatbread. These are flavors that I wouldn't have thought to put together on my own, and they totally work. It was so yummy and so easy to make. And bonus, I also received for free organic roasted chicken breast that I threw into a salad for another meal. Hungry Root is my partner in healthy and yummy living. Right now, Hungry Root is offering Mom and Mind listeners 40% off your first delivery and free veggies for life. Just go to HungryRoot.com slash cat to get 40% off your first delivery and get your free veggies. That's HungryRoot.com slash cat. Don't forget to use our link so they know we sent you. This episode is supported by Factor. Eating better is better with ready-to-eat Factor meals. And ready-to-eat means pop it in the microwave for two minutes and done. I mix in a few of these meals into my rotation for the days that we're on the run or that I don't want to make anything. I chose the high-protein and calorie-smart options, one of which is the mushroom chicken thighs and wild rice with garlic roasted green beans. This is restaurant quality and so tasty. I can adjust how many meals I get in my order as much or as little as I need every week. Plus, I can pause or reschedule my deliveries anytime, which comes in really handy for our busy schedule. Head to factormeals.com slash momandmind50 and use code momandmind50 to get 50% off. That's code momandmind50 at factormeals.com slash momandmind50 to get 50% off. If you're thinking about the birth situation and environment too, especially if you haven't gone through birth before or C-section or however it is that you're birthing, there's so much going on to that like you were describing before that they might be taking in or trying to understand to then also have a hold an awareness of all of the things you need and the things that you wanted to do while you were it. It's so hard. Like so many parts of your brain have to be involved in just experiencing something and also being aware of what your needs are. And that honestly takes a lot of practice. So right. Having, having somebody you feel like who knows your wants and needs is so important and that they can speak on your behalf. I love that. 
Yeah. And then finally, talking a little bit more now about how medical professionals can can really provide trauma-sensitive care, trauma-informed care. Yes. So thinking about how Obviously, it's always going to be whether or not the patient is okay with it, but having one medical person being assigned to write on the patient's chart, like this is a survivor, so that the survivor then doesn't have to go tell each person, oh, by the way, I'm a survivor, so please can you ask me permission when you do this, but rather having that on their medical chart so that anybody who will come in contact with the patient will see this in big red letters and will hopefully provide more trauma-informed care. And thinking about it too, so... If a patient is being rushed into, whether it be an emergency C-section or or an elective C-section or any sort of procedure that will require them to be under anesthesia, again, that's another person that the patient is having really take control over their body, right? So informing them of what's going to happen. Some clients may request a video post-surgery of what happened. A survivor Mm. once shared with me, she went in for breast surgery. And she came into me for a counseling session and she said to me, I know this is probably going to sound crazy to you, but I really want to get a video of what happened to me during breast surgery. I just don't know why, but I feel like the doctor did something to me while I was under anesthesia. And to somebody that may be like, that sounds like delusional. I don't know, paranoia, right? But whereas as a survivor, right? right? Like that is so... It is so scary to them to have somebody really overtake their their bodies. Yeah, I, so I was just thinking like that. You know, there are so many ways that some medical systems have res- restrictions around videotaping and, and stuff like that or recording any kind of audio or, or whatnot. I mean, like that, it just reminded me that there's this whole other bureaucratic layer that people might be having to navigate. And that's probably one of the most big, that's probably one of the, the biggest challenges is you're you're right the bureaucratic layer that will apply to so many things but that that mm-hmm. I think makes it challenging which is why many survivors will actually opt to have to to give birth in a birthing center or sure. or at home or something mm-hmm. like that because of that um, mm-hmm. so definitely definitely obviously most importantly asking patients permission right like that's what we just keep talking about like it's yeah. such it's such a simple task asking them permission before you engage in any sort of procedure or anything, whether it be just touching them or asking them questions, communicate with them every step of the way, letting them know, look, I'm going to be doing this next and that next, right? Asking for feedback. I'm checking in with you. How, how is this feeling to you? Yeah. Really refrain from saying things like be still, be calm, don't move, right? All of those words can be very triggering. Yeah. Not good. Yes. Allowing the survivor to set the boundaries again, as much as possible, right? Mm -hmm. Proceeding very, very slowly, especially in in the world of of reproductive medicine related to like IVF. Many survivors have shared that they would like to insert the probe, the the ultrasound probe or the speculum themselves. So honoring that request, right? And again, just just, it's so important to give the patient as much autonomy as possible, allowing them to, to wear something that may be against hospital policy, if it's all possible, right? Mm -hmm. Like teaching them. And I know this is going to sound funny, but like, this is coming from actually like nursing research articles where it's telling, like, it's, it's really telling patients, like, try to break the rules, obviously not in a dangerous or extreme way, but wear your favorite PJs, 
Bring your favorite blanket. Wear your, wear your undergarments if it's what makes you feel most comfortable during labor and delivery. Bring in your favorite smelling essential oil. Like really coming in with making it as much as comfortable and as sensitive as possible. Right. It's important to not rush contact between the birthing person and their baby. So many, mm. many times in, in labor and delivery, again, like the survivor is in a, a traumatic Yep. They're having a traumatic response, right? So then suddenly them given this baby is like, oh my goodness, right? So they may also be terrified to hold the baby or to look at the baby, ensuring that they have resources, right? I know that's always a challenge. So doing your doing the work beforehand, of course, respecting their choices, avoiding any sort of exposure, right? Following their lead. Also, they, they may have no idea how to care for a baby. So teaching right. them how to hold the baby how to follow the baby's cues. Mm -hmm. So coming back to this idea of like finding workarounds, one of the most activating triggering time for a survivor can sometimes be breast or chest feeding. Mm -hmm. So thinking about, can they use a nipple shield or if they want to exclusively pump or formula feed again, not touching them right. When trying to show them how to breast or chest feed. Oh my gosh. I've heard such horrible. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Some great stories and some really difficult ones. Yes. Yes. Right. So just being so mindful of that. Mm-hmm. And, and it's interesting because the research on, on the one hand talks about breast or chest feeding as being a wonderful time for survivors, but I recall being repulsed by it. It mm-hmm. was intolerable. And mm-hmm. I remember completely disassociating every time. Mm-hmm my baby would latch. Mm -hmm. So, so recognizing that it's really not one size fits all. Yeah. Again, reminding the survivor about self-compassion and taking care of themselves and setting boundaries with others. And of course, autonomy Them about breathing exercises and mindfulness. The other thing too, and this is more important for therapists is to obviously check in with survivors and Mm -hmm. then you're not asking them questions, but rather saying statements like I'm thinking of you. Right. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes they don't want to answer questions. So, so just saying kind, compassionate, warm statements. Mm-hmm. This is something that's, that's really a totally different piece, but I, I feel like it's so important to address is for many people, and this is going to be shocking. The first time they will actually know that they are a survivor is during pregnancy, labor, and delivery. Mm-hmm. There's, I once got a call from somebody who had four healthy living children. At her fifth pregnancy, she suddenly started to have flashbacks and memories. Mm. And she was so confused what happened, right? So there's a whole other layer of shock of what happened to me. I had no idea this happened to me. Right. So this may be the first time that this is something that's actually coming up for them. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I mean, this is so, I mean, from from the therapist side, because, right, we're thinking as therapists about all of these connections and possibilities and and things that you might be experiencing and everybody's constellation of what they're experiencing is slightly different some similarities for sure so but the person who's experiencing it can't necessarily be aware of of all of that we as therapists are trying to hold space that all of these things are possible and that we're, we're going to be there to to support whatever process they need to go through but man if you're just starting to piece the puzzle together yourself, that is just incredibly overwhelming. Yeah. While you're supposed to be like taking care of a baby. Yeah. They're, both of those things are so hard on their own, yes. let alone to have to do them together. 
And I think for me, when I, as I reflect back on my journey, I, I think that really the, like what we would call traditional PMADs, I think for me really somewhat got resolved at about eight weeks postpartum. But then for the remainder of that year, it was intolerable for me, not because of the PMADs itself, but because of the almost like aftermath of that trauma, right? right, right. right? It was like, you I was sort through was, all of it, right? Yeah, it was like the first time mm-hmm. in my life that something that intense happened to me. It was the first time it was like, whoa. And mm-hmm. I, it, what I will say is that it has led to beautiful healing. Yeah. One in which I, I will always tell my, again, support group members when they struggle with attachment with their infants or bonding, I should say, I, I will always tell them it took me about a year to fall in love with my baby. And mm-hmm. I'm, I'm in love with him today. Mm-hmm. But it, it wasn't obviously his fault, but rather it was the traumatic response that I had that lasted for so long because unfortunately I wasn't getting the right care. Mm-hmm. And my hope for all survivors is that they are seeing those who are trauma-informed, who yep. are knowledgeable on the different nuances that come along with absolutely sexual abuse or any sort of abuse. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, thank you. I mean, there are so many really important points that you brought in for for survivors and therapists and professionals to think about. And it also sounds like this last part that you brought in about it's possible to feel better and that there is hope that feels really, really important. So thank you for everything you brought in today. Absolutely. And thank you again for having me. Definitely. If you'd like to learn more about Deborah's work, go to beautifuljc.com. Also, please check the show notes for this episode. There are several resources that might be useful for you for education and supportive resources. Thank you so much for joining us. Until next time. Thank you so much for joining us today. Please share this podcast. Together we can support moms and families so that no one has to deal with this alone. Come connect with us at momandmind.com. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book, Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence, whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy.